This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Stock scenario openings. Critical term drift. Fall of Delta Green for radicals. And Livonian werewolves. You are cute, you are cunning, you are fierce. And of course that is true of beloved Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff listeners, but what I'm talking about here are your stats in Magical Kitties Save the Day from our friends at Atlas Games. Magical Kitties Save the Day is a role-playing game for players of all ages. Play as a cat with magical powers. Save your human from corrupted robots, evil witches, money problems, and more. Even young children can learn to GM and run the game for their friends. A solo play option is available, too, for loner kitties. Magical Kitty Save the Day is kickstarting as of July 16th. You can learn more at atlas-games.com slash magicalkitties or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And in the Gaming Hut, you see a mysterious cloaked stranger, and he's he's got a map. No, hold on, hold on. No, you see a guy, and he's in a sharp suit, and he's got cyberware, and he says, I'm Mr. Johnson, and <laughs> no, that's not what you see. I don't know. Robin, these are just weak stock scenario openings. I hate them all. What can we do instead? Right. So, uh, what I want to do is, uh, distinguish, uh, be- or, or I guess ask ourselves the question of why even bother to try to vary up your, uh, scenario openings. Given and that it's sort of the, the, the prologue of the play and you have to have it in order to get off the ground and everyone understands you all meet in a tavern is just, yeah, yeah, get to the box text. Right. So the, uh, a setup where you all meet in the tavern or a setup, uh, I, more specifically the, the second one where, you are assigned a mission by the person who assigns you missions, is, if not used every single week, a perfectly fine scenario opener because uh, it is clear, gets things started, not a lot of faffing around, and works particularly well in that instance with a group that does well with a directed mission, with a a clear goal. Uh, Some groups do very well by uh, pawing through the sand and uh, finding the dinosaur and deciding uh, what to do with the dinosaur, whereas others... Uh, would prefer to skip the hour of uh, circular debate about what what you do, uh, where you're going to go, and just say, what's, what's our mission for the night? And in, and in some games, I mean, if you're playing Mission Impossible, you need a mission on the tape, because that's in the game. Right. It's, it's, so if something is part of the accepted structure of a game that people really like, uh, it's not weak, right? And you have right. the advantage, unlike someone uh, who's creating passive narrative entertainment to know what your players like. So if they yeah. uh, prefer uh, to go to the same tavern every uh, week and get a different map from the same guy with the hat. Or even a different guy with a hat. Yeah, that is it. That is not a weak scenario opening. That is a strong one. But uh, I think what makes that particularly weak, you've already alluded to it, is the Mr. Johnson's uh, uh, scenario where uh, not only... Do you know that it's in the genre that a guy is going to show up with a briefcase and uh, uh, GPS coordinates and tell you to go do something? But you also know that you're going to get hosed at the end, that that it's a setup for you to do something that you as a players don't want to do. That's, right. Uh, the, 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 it's not only the here's how the adventure starts, but here's how you're expected to set up your own third act twist because I'm too lazy to have thought of one. Right. So, for example, the Ezoterrorist absolutely uses the you meet in a new location. You meet up with your Mr. Verity, which is the code name of whoever it is who's assigning you the uh, the task for the, the week. Uh, Mr. Verity is different every time and may or may not match your visual description of the, the word uh, mister. Um, mm-hmm. And you meet in a different place. So you're all showing up where the, the mission is. So that's a little bit of a twist. But the other thing that's necessary to make that mission structure work is that uh, the organization giving the missions, the Ordo Veritatis, is always trustworthy. They're always Yeah, the they're good not guys. trying to screw you. Right. And 
uh, whenever we would get pitches from other people wanting to do uh, scenarios, they'd say, this is the one where the Ordo Veritatis screws you. And I, as a consultant, would say, no, it's not, because that doesn't happen in this game. It's right. just not how it works. Yeah, I mean, it's same with Delta Green, right? Delta yeah. Green does a lot of things badly or wrong, but it does not, you know... It doesn't have enough agents to deliberately screw them. Yes. If someone's <laughs> going to screw the players in Delta Green, that's the player's job. That's, that is the player's job, and they do an excellent job, and why would you farm that out? Uh, yes. But even within a mission structure, uh, if that's the typical thing, you still probably want to vary it occasionally. So you can start off as a change of pace by having a character, uh, you know, one of the ultra-competent agents uh, come across something in their personal life that seems like that needs investigating or an old enemy comes after them or that you can create something that varies it up and immediately creates a, a sense of stakes. Because I think the the weakest scenario opener is one in which the players are presented with a situation, but then they get a bunch of chances to noodle around and not move expeditiously to the adventure part. Right. So uh, classically, uh, the mission where you meet up with uh, the guy in the pith helmet in Timbuktu and he tells you that the plane is coming to pick you up in a day. That is a weak scenario opener. You start on the plane already. Yeah. You can still let them gather their stuff or do their prep and flashback if need be, if your game is not a gumshoe game that has the preparedness role to skip all that bit. Um, so that you uh, want to structure the beginning of your scenarios that you, so that you can avoid premise rejection which is uh, something that about the most annoying thing that players can do, and particularly uh, very old-school players uh, sometimes had the ethos where you, the GM, have, have to really, really earn my participation in this adventure. Why am I, why am I even in a horror game? Uh, so <laughs> if you know that your players are all totally game and are not going to you know, pull that bunk on you, you can n- not worry about this. But for, for example, a published adventure you probably still have to come up with some sort of mechanism to avoid premise rejection. And and one of them, of course, is to use the classic fictional technique of start them as deep into the adventure as possible. Uh, So in a D&D context, you could say, well, you've you've traveled six leagues after meeting the man in the red hat in the tavern who gave you this map, and now you're in front of the gates. And guess what? You've skipped a bunch of uh, nonsense, and you've immediately presented them with an obstacle. So so um, in Delta Green, for example, it also has a mission structure. So how right. would you uh, vary that up so that it's not just the, here's the, the folder with the stuff on it at the beginning of every single right. one. Having it a bunch of times is great, but what are uh, ways to, to mess with that formula? Yeah, I mean, uh, with, with Delta Green, for example, there is the, where are you when you're called in? I mean, I've already run in, in my follow-up Delta Green campaign, I've already run you're all at Thanksgiving dinner. Describe the scene at Thanksgiving dinner. And as they do, every one of them is interrupted by a call or a knock at the door or something that ruins their life. And that seeds the thing into their character, into their lived character experience. Uh, another possibility is to vary, as you say, vary the Mr. Verity, vary the, the, the guy who's giving it. So if it's a different handler than your normal handler, but they know all the Delta Green code words, maybe that's a sign something's up because in the Delta Green uh, universe, both in modern day Delta Green, when there's the real organism, the program and the cowboys, and both of them know some of the same code words as the other, maybe you're being hijacked. You're still being hijacked to be sent to fight the mythos, but you're maybe there's some sort of uh, argument above your pay grade that you don't know what's going on. Similarly, in the fall of Delta Green era, the um, XCOM, the, ex- the executive committee, is at odds, and there's different members of it that have different ideas of what the job of Delta Green is. So you have, what does the handler mean by this? What's going on? You can sort of add some level of mystery to this without the, oh, they're working for Neurothotep, because that's boring and stupid, as we've mentioned previously. Another possibility is, like you say, just vary the location. Do uh, One of the fun things in the old Mission Impossible TV show was that you follow uh, Peter Graves on whatever his day-to-day adventure is. He's sailing on a sailboat or he's uh, going to buy a record or he's, um, uh, you know, as it goes on, he's, he's on an airplane. And then some way the the the, the mission is presented to him in a, in a weird and, and unusual fashion. And that can be fun. Just the, this is how, this is how far the hand of Delta Green extends is, you know, you see the, 
the the green triangle in the corner of the video game you're playing and you and you click on it and then uh, good morning um uh, here's your mission uh can be going on all manner of different possibilities uh just to sort of game that and then in addition part of it should be that you are encouraged i think just regardless of how mission focused the game is to keep your eyes open and follow up on things so if you're playing James Bond and your mission is M gives you a mission every time, maybe you notice that Blofeld is up to something. And so you either go pester him or you go, uh, you, you call up M and you say, I think I just saw Blofeld in Helsinki and he's doing something weird with, you know, uh, earthquakes. What's going on with that? And then M is like, Oh, I'll get back to you. Keep him in sight, but don't engage. And then you go up and of course, Blofeld's doing something awful and you have to decide, am I engaging? Am I not engaging? And play with that, you know, perfectly legitimate rules of engagement that you have to break, uh, because you're the man on the scene and, uh, you understand that the situation, those, uh, bureaucrats back at headquarters can't make all the calls. And one thing that you can do once you've established a pattern is that you can kind of do clever variations on that usual setup. So for example, if they're used to always going to the same tavern to get a mission from the guy in the red hat, they, uh, go there and the mission that they expected to have is preempted because guess what? They see the agents of night riding off, having captured the man in the red hat. And so mm-hmm. there you go. Immediately, um, it's still got the red man in the red hat in it, but you, you have a chase sequence. And, you know, if you rescue the man uh, who assigns you your missions, then he can explain, you know, why those people were after him and the next thing you do. But you can sort of find a different way of, of uh, acting on that. Or, you know, you're in... Uh, the headquarters of Delta Green and you hear a terrible screaming on the floor below. Well, there you go. That's, it's sort of like the usual setup in that you're, uh, at headquarters and you, you get a, a mission, but the, the mission is in the headquarters. You've got a bottle episode. Oh no. What are you oh, bottled no. up with? Um, another, another sort of variant on the, on the stock scenario opening that is weak. Uh, the, the call of Cthulhu, uh, uh, problem of the, uh, everybody's got a dead uncle. Yeah. Right. Um, your, your uncle dies and he leaves you his haunted house. That works. And for values of works, it works once. But the second player whose dead uncle dies and leaves him in their house, then it's like, you just have to be taking better care of your uncle's people. Right. So, and you don't actually care about these uncles because you've never heard of them before. Right. They're not relevant. And again, it can work once because it's in genre. Uh, the the relative you've never heard of who leaves you a, a, a a problematic uh, legacy is a absolute staple of pulp adventure fiction. So it, like I say, it can work once, but for multiple times, you do have to figure out a vector to get these haunted houses into people's lap. And it can be a man in the red hat, um, who works at, um, uh, the area ghost tour society or the area parapsychological society. And, is always busy bodying around to the players and saying, Oh, I found a, a, a corker now. The old Jebdi mis- uh, mansion is on sale. I shall buy it. And you're like, Oh, we got to save this idiot. And so they go to the Jebdi mansion, uh, at night because they can't show up by day or else they'll be pestered by realtors and they have to solve the problem. And you have to present some other way of feeding you an endless stream of haunted houses. And that's why things like Delta Green were created in the first place is or as a terrorist, if there is an agency, a group whose job is to keep track of haunted houses, mythos outbreaks, uh, dungeon openings, then it makes sense that they would have stringers or employees like Delta Green that they would say, we will send you on to investigate the situation. Or you make the player characters self-motivated uh, finders out of haunted houses, as opposed to simple dilettantes and hobos who take a break from their busy schedule to bust the occasional ghost. Yeah. Well, once you've got a couple of uh, Cthulhu scenarios under your belt, the classic group of disparate people who uh, don't seem united except by the fact that you all met a Shoggoth together, you can sort of turn the process of uh, mission assignment on its head by saying, well, now that you're aware of the mythos, obviously you are going to keep an eye out for further uh, manifestations. So what is it that you do to be prepared the next time something weird happens so that the players then describe what information gathering network they set up? And it's like, well, we hire a clipping service. It's like, oh, good. Next week, yeah. there will be a, a mysterious clipping that shows up through their equipping service or, you know, that, well, we make sure that, uh, every week I'm going to go to the explorers club and, uh, uh, talk to the, uh, all of the, the geologists and scientists there and make sure nothing weird is happening. So there you go. So have everybody list 
uh, one way that they're going to remain informed of future activity. You know, the, uh, the hobo says, well, I'm going to uh, ride the rails for a while and listen to what people tell me because there's weird things up in the hills and nobody knows what's up in the hills better than uh, my fellow travelers in the, uh, on, on the train. And so. And the FBI agent can say, I'm just going to request, uh, uh, routed copies of all the weird cases, um, and put them in some sort of file that I will indicate with a Roman numeral, the V files. <laughs> so that gives you variety because you've got a different entry point for every PC in the group. Uh, it spares you the mental effort because you made your, uh, your players think of it. And, uh, <laughs> if you just run through those things, uh, you know, once for each uh, a player, uh, there you go. You're set. You've got a custom opening for uh, every uh, adventure for the next little while. And then you can start mixing them up and putting them together. And it's like, oh, well, this clipping, this refers to, didn't you talk about One-Eyed Joe? Yeah, yeah, I met him in St. Louis. Well, let's go to, you know, so that then gives the players more of a sense of authorship and agency over the first little bit that can feel like, you know, the getting on the platform for a railroad. Right. Um, and if there's one thing that's very efficiently railroaded, it is this here podcast. So uh, uh, let's uh, let's get on the choo-choo uh, that goes through uh, through this commercial and see what waits for us on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The tinkling of the harpsichord, the clank of fine silver, the ting of glasses being touched in self-congratulatory self-congratulation welcome us into the tony confines of the culture hut. Uh, and in the culture hut, we aim only to discuss the highest of high criticism, the most noble of high culture. So we're going to talk about critical terms and how the hoi polloi ruined them, Robin. Uh, that the, uh, critics work, oh, they worked literally minutes to come up with hard-hitting terms that provide incisive views of the world, and then they get out, and people just use them however the heck they want. Higgledy and or piggledy, Robin. Right. Can we can we support that? Um, we can, with uh, with the proviso, because, of course, along with the wine and cheese, we've, we're overstocked on provisos. Yeah. Uh, that I think we're going to look at terms that are not emerging from the academy, uh, because uh, I think those kind of uh, mostly stay there or not. We'll determine this in the course <laughs> they, of the discussion. They, they die unloved in the dark. <laughs> right. You know, they, they stay in your semiotics notes. Uh, but these are terms that are sort of uh, bits of kind of folk criticism that people within subgenres or genres uh, and often uh, the sort of uh, academically ill-regarded ones uh, have to come up with in order to discuss uh, what it is it doing and whether they're good or bad. But my contention here is that precise terms start out precise and lose their meaning over time. Uh, that might even be a universal statement about nearly any literary term for anything, but that it is particularly the case when a term that is uh, originates within a particular subculture 
diffuses and gets used over time and essentially becomes meaningless. So the number one example, and we talked about this a bit in the past when we've talked about the new Star Wars movies, is Mary Sue. So the term Mary Sue originally uh, came about in fan fiction circles, and it was a term of derision. It's always been uh, such, but it was originally meant to uh, address people who wrote themselves uh, specifically into Star Trek fanfic as usually uh, then someone who got to get it on with uh, Kirk or Spock. Or both. And, and or both. Sometimes you might, this person might just watch while Kirk and Spock get it on. You know, it's, it's fanfic. It, it crosses boundaries. Uh, but the, it was specifically right. If you had, you know, the 32-year-old former librarian who owns a cat and, uh, and is now uh, working in multi-level marketing, uh, beam up to the Enterprise and, and meet Spock, and get it on with Spock. That's why you beam onto the Enterprise, of course. Um, that this uh, might be very enjoyable for you, the 32-year-old former librarian now involved in multi-level marketing with your cat. Uh, but to others, uh, this perhaps might not be quite so appealing. And so that's where the term Mary Sue came from to describe, oh, yes, you're, you're just writing yourself into the story. But over the years, can that, uh, and particularly down to now, over a period of decades, Mary Sue has come uh, in uh, in some, and I would say incorrect circles, to mean something quite different. So how has it mutated over time? I mean, now people use the term Mary Sue, and because the term began gendered, uh, when a woman writer created Mary Sue as an example of how not to be a woman fan writer, um, it, it has been used with any female character who uh, is a powerful central character. So there is no particular difference between Ray and Luke in terms of their arc. Uh, in fact, that is one of the great flaws with uh, the force awakens, but because she's a natural Jedi, she's a Mary Sue. He was a natural Jedi. He's just Luke. So the notion that a, 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 a strong, uh, powerful character is by definition, a Mary Sue is at the very least, um, ahistorical, and the second remove doesn't really tell you anything about the material. I mean, is it well or badly handled? Uh, the original Mary Sue also had a connotation of joining an established universe and showing them up. So the Mary Sue, uh, Mary Sue would beam onto the Enterprise, and in between getting with Kirk and or Spock, would be better at math than than Spock and be uh, better at the uh, engine repairing than Scotty and would just sort of be the central hero of the Enterprise and everyone would, would agree that she was terrific. And right. that well, was... How else do you capture Spock's attention to get it on? Exactly. And and that was the one of the great flaws of Mary Sue was not that she got it on with Spock. That was not the problem. That Everyone agreed that was the whole point of the literature, but that she did so in a way that um, uh, put shade on the existing characters. And I guess sort of the inverse of the Mary suing is warfing where you have a character who's supposed to be competent, but exists only to be punched by the, the guest Mary Sue of the day. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, so Alfred Pennyworth on Gotham was the, the wharf of that show. If, for example, when Ray had met Luke, Luke had said, Oh my goodness, you're better at the force than I am. Then you would have something legitimately Mary Sue-ish to complain about as opposed to, She's just a good hero for an action space movie, which is everybody. I mean, you don't say, how did that raccoon get so good at murdering people when you watch <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy? He just is. That's why he's right. the special raccoon. Right. And you sometimes hear it used just to describe uh, characters with an aspirational or wish fulfillment quality. So you will hear people say, well, Batman is a Mary Sue. Well, okay, you're just bending the... Uh, term to just refer to iconic heroes. Yeah, because again, that's the reason we're watching that character instead of, or the reason we're watching Captain America instead of uh, Shield Desk Clerk number nineteen is Captain America is awesome, and so of course you want to be Captain America. That's what the word hero means, right? Right, and and of course it's particularly revealing when you were complaining about uh, female characters being wish fulfillment characters and not about. Uh, you know, Thor or Captain America or Iron Man or, or what have you. Or Captain Kirk, who of course is arguably because he was the, the main character in a television show and certainly a television show in the sixties. He does in fact out mathematics Spock. He's like the only guy who can beat Spock at chess and he can know things about, you know, uh, parallel dimensions that Scotty doesn't has to go check on the computer. And that's just because 
as the star of the show, he has to have all of the lines that move the story forward because that's how stars and stories worked in 1967. And, and legendarily, uh, Shatner was uh, insistent. And legendarily, Shatner was very uh, jealous of his prerogatives, shall we say. Yeah. Another example closer to home and role playing is railroading, uh, which is a term that has come to mean about eight to 12 different things uh, because it just sort of become a uh, all purpose pejorative for a thing that the GM has happened in the game that I don't like. Uh, so originally, as the term implies, it is meant to be a straight track from which uh, there are no divergences. So one in which the players have no choice or no agency, but you can have uh, situations in, in play where in fact uh, you are given all kinds of choice but people will complain uh, that there are uh, that there is railroading, or it's like a a scenario where there's uh, choices here, choices here, choices here. But you know this thing fails in this point. You know this, uh, someone will say that that is railroading. That the uh, if something is not infinitely fungible, and of course there are uh, probably many other uh, meanings that people attach. And that's I think another example, like Mary Sue, where people are just looking for an all-purpose a negative term. And uh, they don't want to use uh, role-playing versus role-playing spelled slightly differently because that's, uh, uh, you know, that one's a little transparent and passe. So they're trying to come up with things that seem uh, less overtly uh, snobbish, uh, but they're just people are grasping for a term that they uh, want to apply to something they find generally disappointing and, and uh, wind up not drilling down that far into what it is exactly. Uh, assuredly, they were disappointed by whatever it is that they're describing, but they're settling yeah. for the word railroading when maybe something more uh, precise would apply. Right. And again, the, the the term as originally applied has a – I think the, the differences are closer because, as you say, they're still unhappy with whatever happened in the game, although there are plenty of people who are described something as railroading despite having not played a game, and they will dis- <laughs> yeah. they will hear a – a description of an adventure, a description of a rule set, and they would say, that seems like it would just be railroading. And it's like, well, then that's why we play games, is to find out. Some people argue that getting the information you need to solve a mystery is railroading. Yes. As as I have said uh, by now, railroading is just a uh, a lazy slang term for a campaign that actually goes in a direction. All stories uh, looked at uh, as narratives are railroaded, because you did not, in fact, take any of the opposite paths. And the degree to which you or the universe decided you would do that is not a good or bad thing. It's just what kind of story are we telling? Are, are we telling a classic tragedy in which, yes, you are going to be destroyed by your own flaws. That's why it's a classic tragedy. Are we telling a classic comedy in which, yes, you will marry the heroine at the end and reunite the city because that is how a classic comedy ends. Those are those are dramatic forms, and in even in um, improvisational collaborative gaming, you can be gaming within or outside or next to one of those forms. And some forms, such as mysteries, they have to have a solution. Otherwise, they're just weird Fortiana that happened for no reason. And uh, without discovering that Joseph Kerwin has replaced Charles Dexter Ward and is plotting to raise an army of Ben Franklin zombies... There was no point to having that adventure, and you have to have solved that mystery, and ideally then confronted uh, Joseph Kerwin and turned him back into dust in a satisfying reign of Yogg-Soth authority. Uh, and in fact, in a lot of genre plotting, uh, the uh, effort of the writer is to strip all choices away from the characters so that they can only do that thing. So that they're, right. And uh, tragedies certainly are about finding the track that that, uh, that finally puts you on the, on the end spiral so that there is... Uh, no other way out but forward. Um, and that's something that I think legitimately people uh, want to avoid in uh, role-playing. But uh, there's all sorts of uh, perfectly legit uh, GM uh, moves uh, in between those two things that uh, do not qualify as railroading. Another term that has become less specific over time uh, but is not a pejorative particularly is MacGuffin. So Alfred Hitchcock coined this term to refer to a thing that uh, a plot device that all of the characters are in pursuit of that you don't actually really care about. It just sets the story in motion. So uh, the Maltese Falcon, all the characters very much care about the Maltese Falcon, but you're not like that worried about who gets the Falcon or not. Or in North by Northwest, there's some uh, bit of dialogue about a set of files that they're looking for. And that's what this is all about. But you don't care at all about, you're not like, oh my God, I hope they get those files back. 
Uh, but now MacGuffin has mutated to mean any plot objective that possibly takes objective form. Uh, right. And I guess I've sort of been guilty about this in, in the past occasionally. For example, the most recent episode or season of Discovery, uh, they tried to figure out how many MacGuffins they could possibly pack into a single season of serialized storytelling. And it was a lot, but you do care about some of them. It's not that you, you know, you have no interest in whether uh, those things are found or whatever, or someone's talking about the, uh, the throne in Game of Thrones as a MacGuffin. Again, they are, uh, mis- expanding a specific term right. to just refer to. And then it's just a motive. Yeah, it's, it's just a goal. <laughs> and again, I mean, this is, this is not all their fault. George Lucas famously, in, in addition to misunderstanding everything else, misunderstood the MacGuffin and accidentally therefore made one of the greatest films ever, Raiders of the Lost Ark, because he said, wouldn't it be better if they cared about the MacGuffin and the audience <laughs> cared about the MacGuffin? Then that would be a better movie. Yes. And, you know, you can't argue with Raiders. It, right. it, it's a great movie, but as the man says in the story, tis na MacGuffin. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, do other terms that have uh, expanded into uh, vagueness over uh, time come to mind, Ken? I, I think a lot of people, uh, I don't know how common this is uh, because I don't necessarily run into it a lot, but I'm, I'm morally certain that uh, people get rising action jambled up with just the movie got exciting, right? Right. That, the, the 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 famously the freight tra- the freight tags triangle is that the, there's rising action to a climax the climax happens ideally as close to the uh, turn of the third to the fourth act as you possibly can and then the fallout is the denouement right? right that's the general understanding and I think people hear the words rising action and they think there must be action <laughs> and it must be thrilling or uh, exalting or in in some somewhere like that and and so I see the I don't see it used wrong, but I see it used like only sort of, I guess the opposite is it's only used half the time. So a movie that makes right. you. It's just a constant escalation where, of course, right. that ever is... more sad and despairing would also have rising action. Yes. Because that's the action of the film. But you don't ever see people refer to, you know, something in Sophie's choice as rising action, right? Right. And, and I think that uh, you're right that they're stumbling over the word uh, action, whereas it's being used in the classical sense of things that happen in the story rather than uh, something that is uh, thrilling or suspenseful or, uh, you know, physically seen. So that uh, the rising action, of course, is just the increasing movement toward a, a, a climax. And that's uh, easy to uh, misunderstand. Uh, well, I think if we're to avoid uh, anti-climax, it's time for us to jump out of this segment and see uh, what uh, perhaps even a Mac- MacGuffin uh, might lead us uh, past this commercial to the other side. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Stop this podcast from having a terrible stock ending by joining such Patreon backers as... Ethan James. Linda and Mike Schiffer. Andrew Dacey. Mark Galliotti. And Rafe Ball. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, Mrs. Obed Marsh, Patreon backer, uh, asks about running Fall of Delta Green... Uh, where the PCs, uh, rather than being uh, part of the U.S. covert intelligence apparatus, are, uh, in a way, the, the uh, 
opposite of that. They're leftist radicals. Uh, so, uh, uh, can the SDS version of, uh, Fall of Delta Green, uh, that's a pretty radical, uh, reframing. How would you set about doing it? Um, this is, this is the sort of thing that sort of on its surface makes a fine, uh, standard sort of Cthulhu adventure and that you are a bunch of people who meet under a weirdly contrived circumstance. In this case, you're all at a anti-war rally or whatever. You discover that bad doings are afoot. You stop the bad doings. And then you discover, oh, this was not a one-off. We have to keep doing this. And in the world of Fall of Delta Green, that is completely possible that you are playing, using the Fall of Delta Green rule set, a non-Delta Green game of Cthulhuid investigation. You're basically playing Trail of Cthulhu 1968 and having a grand time with it. The thing that you're doing, though, is sort of setting to one side all that makes Delta Green specifically Delta Green. Um and and so I want to say there's no reason you can't do it. I assume that your character lifespans in the fairly brutal rule set of Fall of Delta Green are even briefer in a world where you don't have access to machine guns. But that's I mean that's up to you, and that's on the the, the uh, handler to uh, run uh, a a game that uh, uh, creates both the uh, existential terror of the mythos, but also doesn't chew through characters you know eight at a time. Um, and that's just the art of running Cthulhu, which is a whole different question. Right. But you could also, you could also do real tweaks to make it less overtly yeah. deadly in order to. Right. You sort of move back in the direction of, um, uh, pure trail, for example. Uh, I think one of the things though that makes it interesting if you're running this in the Delta Green universe is the notion that as we know, as the left themselves would joke, you know, if there's four of you at a meeting, one of you is an FBI guy. The, the joke being. And it's that, funny because it's true. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's and it's also a great way to make an excuse for not accomplishing anything. But the uh, but in this case, Delta Green would be keeping an eye on uh, private anti mythos fighters within the left, and would perhaps even be feeding them their intel. So the the guy who lets you crash in his compound and sends you back out into the fight, you know, full of granola and and and, and rifle bullets. Oh, it turns out he's actually Delta Green. Maybe he was an old Delta Green agent who's retired to his compound in Michigan. Maybe he's um, a Delta Green guy whose just job is to infiltrate the left. And so you can play a game of Fall of Delta Green, which the players know that they are being used by Delta Green, but the characters don't or the characters begin to suspect it. And then, of course, you can have what if one of us is actually FBI? What if one of us is the man and... Is that a betrayal in a world where Nyarlathotep exists? Or is it something that we kind of want to use and maybe uh, don't look too closely at in the same way that various groups who had connections to government uh, uh, agencies would spill tea on other groups and say, you go raid them. They're competing with us for for votes and money and leave us alone. And, of course, the FBI was happy to play one side against the other. So is one of the solutions then to... Focus on Majestic 12, the more overtly, uh, antagonistic, uh, side of the Intel, uh, Cthulhu connection. And, right. and that, certainly if you want to have the radicals do things against the, the man, against the state, against the system, Majestic 12 is the perfect incarnation of, of that, that reification of both the military industrial complex and man messing with things man is not supposed to mess with. And again, that's a completely legitimate thing for the their Delta Green handler to be sending them after is Majestic 12 is, hey, we hear that there's this weird experimental facility that's um, uh, uh, doing um, experiments on, you know, uh, mentally challenged people. Go raid it. And sure enough, it's a Majestic 12 facility. And Delta Green's like, gosh, I'm surprised that you let a bunch of hippie radicals break in and steal your operating manual. Must a black eye for you, Majestic 12. <laughs> and, and you can even do it without the Delta Green element in, in terms that they don't have a Delta Green handler and that Delta Green is asleep at the switch there as they are at other places and that they have stumbled purely onto Majestic 12. And to the player characters, this is the Majestic 12 campaign, not the Fall of Delta Green campaign. Um, and then that you uh, cast all of the bad idea government experiments of the 1960s as majestic experiments. And that is how you get your uh, countercultural um, uh, uh, jams out is uh, by uh, running yourself into those sorts of facilities. And if you break into the FBI regional office, it's not necessarily because of their uh, COINTELPRO. It's because 
the FBI, you've discovered, is covering up uh, this series of mysterious um, uh, exsanguinations at the Air Force Base or whatever. Right. That's what I would be tempted to do, because that allows you to substitute your 60s radical structurally uh, for what the player characters would be doing in a straight up Delta Green game. And it also allows you the moment, uh, you know, when you're deep uh, into the series, whatever number of episodes deep means to you, where you then have, you know, the Delta Green guys step out of the shadows and go, well, we've been watching you for a good while. We were thinking we were going to kill you. Um, and we were just sort of, you know, we were still in this planning stages on that. And now we've decided we're going to recruit you. Uh, so how about it? And so that gives you a, an opportunity to sort of withhold the what would otherwise be the, the central thing that people are waiting for uh, until, uh, you know, make it a big turn and then also uh, create a, a choice for the uh, players. It's like, do we do we side with uh, one with the right arm of the man in order to prevent the even worse left arm from the man uh, from uh, bringing down the fungi from Yogoth or uh, the moon beast or whatever, whatever it is Majestic 12 is up to? Or uh, do we, uh, you know, it's that old thing, do we change the system from within? So I think that would be a fun uh, moral dilemma if you allow the characters to exercise their autonomy kind of early on and then uh, and then finally bring that in rather than uh, cooking in at the beginning that they are secretly working for the man, let them decide uh, later on whether they want to do that or not and what the consequences are. Because, of course, implicitly, uh, when the guy says, yeah, we were thinking of killing you, now we're thinking of recruiting you, thinking of is, uh, thinking of, is, is still yeah. in that sentence, isn't it? Yeah, we, we still got the other folder. Yeah. I mean, we can go back to that other folder if you want. Yeah. The, we just have to connect a couple of wires in that thing under your car. Yeah. But, uh, oh, I said right. too much. You want to join that, us? That VW microbus is a death trap. I can't imagine driving back to your house at 114 Everly Lane in it. So what <laughs> major uh, sort of uh, 60s events then would you want to draw uh, our uh, radicals into? We've... Uh, uh, presumably, we have to have an episode where they're uh, meeting the, uh, you know, Timothy Tillengast, the uh, the LSD uh, pioneer. Right. They get to meet the Merry Pranksters uh, as part of that. What else uh, would? Uh, what storylines would the uh, would these characters have easier access to than the Delta Green characters? I mean, a lot of the things that they would have access to, and that you could do with a game, maybe that is not explicitly about you know being uh, agents of the federal government is that you could look at things because in the in the book I very carefully tried to illustrate that yes there's you know bad communes and yes there's bad hippies but that you know the entire protest movement is not the right tentacle of Cthulhu that uh or and certainly the civil rights movement is not a a a mythos inspired up, uh, uprising against Lovecraft's a wasp order, uh, that would be wrong, <laughs> both historically and dramatically. But you would have, I think, more freedom to investigate, you know, weird gurus and, uh, the sort of the, the dodgy dark part of the left in a way with this campaign than maybe you would as someone trying to run a historically sensitive Fall of Delta Green game where everyone's in the government. And, um, uh, you, you want to sort of balance out the, you know, uh, busting, uh, weird cults with busting well, weird government experiments. And so you would have some more of that. And then in terms of just moments, I mean, obviously we've talked previously on this show, even about the fun of the Chicago democratic convention. And so you think of things like uh, Woodstock, it would be great to run an adventure at Woodstock. I ran an adventure in my fall of Delta green campaign set at the yippie attempt to exercise the Pentagon to raise the Pentagon. I wrote a, a page XX about it even. So that's uh, these sort of like high water moments of uh, the radical left uh, that are, are big and colorful and, and chaotic and full of people. And you, you, no one could say whether or not in one distant corner of Altamont, there was also a bunch of people who were drowning a, a rat thing is sort of part of the fun of running something in the sixties is to go to these, these very big high pressure moments. And then the other thing that you can have is that there's lots of survivors of government failures who joined the left. And that includes not just guys who served in Vietnam, came back and were radically anti-war, but it also includes people who were survivors of other government experiments. And so maybe you get a guy who escaped from the majestic version of, of MK Ultra, who is trying to blow the whistle on, on that. And so you can have that sort of quality of 
what are we making public? How are we revealing this? Can we steal the documents that prove that this mind control scheme is going on? And can we fight it uh, effectively? Can we reveal it without sounding like crazy people? What if there are, I mean, there are crazy people. What about them? You know, what else is going on? And and so that I, I, I just hesitate to leave behind the, the, the sort of free floating paranoia that's also so uh, present in, in the sixties left and leave that completely off the table as much as I agree that that structure that you're talking about makes a very satisfying, uh, moment where, uh, the, the, the man in the trench coat is now offering you knowledge and ins- and access. And if you want it, that will also keep you from being blown up. Um, so that's nice. Right. And you can string that out for quite a, a while, right? That there can be, yeah. Oh, there's, you know, you, you, uh, need a gun. Oh, there's a box with a gun in it. And uh, you don't know who gave it to you, but you're glad it's there. And uh, mm-hmm. maybe there's something into it. And you know, uh, the wrapping, the handwriting reminds you of your contact in uh, in, in the Yippie movement. So, uh, and then we weren't sure whether we should have uh, given you the gun or not. And we have regrets all around about what happened to the security guard. But you know, there was a shadow on the wall. It was weird. And you know, this stuff happens. And so, you know, if you can make even the help that they're getting seem part yeah. of the paranoia, uh, and. Uh, you know, is this is this all due to a bad batch of uh, of uh, acid? Uh, you know, how how much of this is real? How much is unreal? Uh, you could sort of bring in some Philip K. Dick elements. I mean, that's that's another that's another certainly a a big thing that uh, being leftist radicals opens up is unless you are a government chemist, you are probably not dosing yourself with LSD or with other weird psychoactive chemicals. If you're in the leftist student movement, probably you're doing a lot, and so. The opportunity to sort of add sort of weird hippie dreamlands adventures or, uh, what is reality? Philip K. Dick style adventures or just, oh, you've opened the doors of perception. Good luck closing them again adventures. Uh, that's a thing that you can do with, uh, leftist radical PCs that will be harder to get away with if they have to actually go back to the FBI at nine o'clock on Monday and, uh, not look like they're super, super stoned. And so where do you see this, uh, what would be the grand uh, climax of a, uh, a leftist radical campaign? Do you actually, uh, do you make it the, uh, the, the levitation of the Pentagon, or uh, is there another sort of big moment you could work toward? I mean, the, the classic end of the 60s is Altamont, and so you can you can certainly set the, the final uh, confrontation with Nir Lathotep at Altamont as the Rolling Stones sing Sympathy for the Devil. I mean, I think that that is sort of the, the default answer, and then you figure out, you know, is it worth going to that very, very obvious stopping place, or is our campaign about other things? And maybe it's a, it, maybe the the thing is that you jump forward six years and you finish it up with all of your characters as old gray survivors in some California um, est compound, and they're, they're brought out for one last adventure against the man during the bicentennial, and they know that they're too old and too broken and too messed up, but they're literally the only thing that the world has to go with it before uh, Majestic 12 makes their deal with the Mygo and, and shuts everything down. That... I think would be even a funner thing because the other sort of much like the Western, the radical narrative now is about the end of the radical narrative is about, you know, the, the waking up moment. Right. And the, the even darker coda, uh, as we yeah. know that the uh, Silicon Valley comes out of the counterculture. So it could be all you right. flash forward to uh, all of the, the, the startup everybody's working on in the basement. That's going to finally yep. rectify all of the madness in the world by allowing everyone in the world to communicate with each other and share their thoughts and that will banish the mythos, uh, essentially, uh, forever and, and make everything safe and to, and finally realize the true optimism in the 1960s and put all the darkness right. of Altamont and suddenly it becomes halt and catch fire. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and of course, uh, accent on the catch fire. <laughs> right. Yes. It's, it's all catch fire. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler. Uh, well, on that note, I think we can uh, move through this commercial to uh, whatever mysteriously lies on the other side. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, 
Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once more to creep up the creakety carb web stairs where we will uh, look at the glowering portrait of Madame Vlasky. We'll give her a little wave, but she'll pay us no mind. Never mind. There's a friendlier person inside the parlor of the consulting occultist. He's waiting in his uh, dinner jacket. He's got his pipe going. And he's here to tell us all about Livonian werewolves. Uh, this is a, a lesser known uh, werewolf tradition and uh, uh, one that's a lot of fun and... Uh, uh, one that I guess is sort of better known in uh, Teutonic literature than in the Anglosphere. Uh, but it starts, uh, or is first revealed, when a man named Feast of Kaltenbrunn is uh, tried for heresy in Jürgensburg, Swedish Livonia, in 1692. Now, I can hear our listeners saying, Livonia? What's Livonia? Well, uh, you may recall that Sweden once controlled a big chunk of the Baltics, uh, and uh, what they did is they took southern Estonia and northern Latvia, put them together, called it Livonia, or sometimes Swedish Livonia. And uh, Thies of Kaltenbrunn uh, was uh, a pretty interesting figure who it's, it's hard not to think of in sort of uh, comic uh, terms. Uh, he was an octogenarian, and the way that his uh, secret identity as a werewolf was exposed was that he was just a witness to a church robbery and the church authorities uh, came in to figure out who was uh, messing with the church and or Lutheranism, and the case got out of hand. So uh, yeah. what, what, what did Thies reveal to the, uh, the... The church investigators did not want to hear what he had to say. It no, meant a big hassle ridiculous. for them. It's 1692. No one believes in werewolves. This is a scientific modern age. And you say secret identity, but, you know, when they started asking around, people would say, oh, yeah, you mean the werewolf. <laughs> yeah. Thies of Cottonbrook. Yeah, yeah, he I know. up about being He's a, a werewolf. werewolf. He should He's have shut up about guy. being a werewolf. You need a guy to turn into a wolf and run down to hell and save your harvest? He's the man. He's He's good people. Uh, so apparently, uh, the secret identity had also been bruised, opened, if you will, because he'd previously, um, been suing a farmer from a different town in Livonia, from Lemberg, of, uh, breaking his nose while in hell. Uh, he said the farmer was a satanic witch and he but and he broke my nose with a broomstick uh, while I was a werewolf. Right. So if we're sympathizing too much with Thies for being hauled in front of the authorities, he's accusing other people of being satanic witches. It's, exactly. While admitting to being a virtuous and, werewolf. And the judges are like, you're a werewolf. He said, yes, I am. <laughs> and I went to hell and that's where I met my neighbor and he broke my nose with a broomstick. And right. he's like, do you have any proof of this? My nose is broken. Get out of our court. That was the yeah. response. We, we don't and have jurisdiction. This assault happened in hell. Take it up yes. with, uh, with Lucifer. Yeah. Take it up with the devil. Yeah. So 1692, he's he's brought in as a witness to the um uh, to a whole different thing, a church robbery. And as I suspect is true of 80 year olds in modern day Livonia and in past Livonia, once you get a guy up on the stand, he's going to start talking. And he says, church robbery, schmerch robbery, what are we going to do about all these witches? As a werewolf, I take a stand against witchcraft and I don't like it. And they're saying, excuse me? And he says, yeah, I put on a wolf skin, uh, St. Lucia's Day, maybe on Pentecost, St. John's Day if we feel it. Me and a bunch of the up werewolves. To three, we, up to three days a year we can do this. Yeah. We get together, we put on our wolf skin, we go down to hell, we beat the hell out of some witches because they're uh, working for Satan. We take all the the crops and the and the sheep that they've stolen and put in hell we take them back distribute them to the people you know just werewolf stuff just standard right and and mr thies when you say werewolf you mean that metaphorically right oh no oh no sir literal no, wolf. sir 
I turn into a wolf. Yeah. I won't have any truck with your postmodern shamanistic mumbo jumbo. Carlo Ginsberg is well exceeding the, the bounds of this <laughs> historical document. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Carlo Ginsberg, people may recall from episode 133, we talked about the Benendante, which is the magical practitioners of an area of Italy who, uh, uh, used fennel in order to, uh, enter a, another realm and battle, uh, witches. And, uh, when he came across the story of the Livonian werewolves, he went, ah, just like my thing is shamanism, this too must also be shamanism. And this is obviously a, a resurgence of, uh, primal shamanism. Uh, later, uh, scholars have said, not everything is shamanism. And, uh, the, uh, current drift is that, oh, wait a minute, there are, local traditions that can spring up uh, pretty quickly and don't uh, harken back to things that happened uh, six cultures ago or a thousand years ago. Uh, maybe that's just sort of evolved now, which brings us to the question, is it Livonian werewolf or Livonian werewolves? Is there any evidence that anybody other than this particular uh, guy engaged in this practice? Because if not, it's not shamanism. It's Old coot-ism. <laughs> it's old coot. Old cootery. Um, I mean, again, the only thing we have to go on is this one court case. God bless the judges of Jurgensburg, but they said, we do not have time, budget, or interest in rousting out all the werewolves in town. <laughs> Even if there's werewolves, seems to be going all right. We're just going to tick along. Right. And, and, and in fact, uh, you know, contrary to our conceptions, uh, it was quite often the case uh, that when uh, cases of heresy and witchcraft came before uh, actual church authorities, uh, not in the context of a public panic that was brought before secular authorities, the church authorities cottoned on pretty quickly to the fact that this is, a lot of this stuff is crazy. This, <laughs> this isn't really happening. Just problem people. And, and they would try, there were cases where they tried to talk uh, people, no, you didn't go to a blackened heath at midnight and, uh, kiss the devil's posterior and fly around in a witch. You're just, you're just a confused old lady. Why don't you just admit that? And no, no, I, we, we all went and kissed the the devil on the put. No, you. So there, and this was another case where it's like, no, really, you're just making trouble for everybody. You're just causing problems. everyone problems. Yes. And uh, uh, Thies was apparently also sort of a, a area like uh, they call him a cunning man in England, but it's the sort of folk healer, and he would do magic and blessings. And part of that, I think, is just. If you lived to be 80 in 17th century Livonia, you had to have something magic going on. So let's go ask old Thies uh, to bless our, you know, uh, calf or whatever. And he'd, and he'd do the, the healing and the charming and the, well, I've never seen a moon like that since I 14 yeah. or whatever. And, and one can imagine a scenario in which, you know, say a sickly calf died and someone comes to Thies of Kaltenbrunn asking for their money back and he, well... No, that was that was a witch. That was, that was uh, the witches. Witches took that. Of the witch. But for yep. a for a small additional fee, if you bought the extended warranty, I can turn into a wolf next uh, uh, Saint Lucia's Day and go to hell and and beat him up, and uh, right. that might help your dead calf in some way. And, and hell, by the way, they I, I love these judges, man. When you read this case, they are the the, the most patient, decent <laughs> Lutherans you've ever met. Yes, and they're like. So hell, you literally go to hell. He's like, oh yeah, so you magically travel to hell. Yes, it's beyond the sea. Beyond the sea where? Well, it's a swamp. Where is it? Oh, it's about a mile from your house. Really? The swamp a mile from my house? Hell swamp? That's where you went? Yep. Why haven't I noticed hellish things occurring around this swamp? <laughs> well, because you're probably busy on Pentecost. You're a judge. You're a big man. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so he has a bunch, he, I mean, he did not rat out his fellow werewolves. They said, name these fellow werewolves. And he's like, can't do it, won't do it. And then he sort of claimed, no, I'm the only werewolf because I've never met someone worthy of my werewolfry, my lycanthropic uh, blessing, which yes. I will pass on by blowing in a jug. <laughs> and it's like, I begin to see where a lot of this is coming from. Yes. Your you, magic you can jug. Become a, in this mythology, and <laughs> you can become a lycanthrope as someone, if a rascal toasts you. Yep. Uh, so by that measure, uh, I think everyone has ever been to a wedding is a um, yes, is, is, is possible, is, is at risk for werewolfery. So at the end of the day, because he is in court, he has made a big scream and deal out of it. They can't just ignore him. They say, do you go to church? Do you take uh, communion? Do you listen to the sermons? Do you say the Lord's Prayer? And he's like, I'm too old for all that. And they're like, oh, why? Why must you do this? <laughs> it was a leading so, question, Thies of Kaltenberg. Like, all you got to say question. is yes. 
I'm cool with God. But nope. So they're like, all right, fine. You can't be doing that. They looked into his magic and then some of his magic didn't mention Jesus. And it's like, all right, our hands are tied. He's literally walked into court demanding that we beat him up. So they flog him and uh, banish him, which again, if you're an 80 something year old guy in Livonia, where do you get banished to? Right. The next village over. Right. I'm sure it's like, I was, I was angling for a flogging, but I was not up for banishment. Not up. And I think banishing is just don't come back to court, you idiot. Yes. Really. (laughs) Because I don't see that. I don't see the the Swedish government sending a patrolman down to frickin', you know, Kaltenbrunn. Yes. Uh, from Jurgensburg, Jurgensburg, which is a big town, neither then nor now. Banished. Wink, wink. Right. Please don't tell us. Now go and keep the werewolf, the 85 year old werewolf away. I suspect they just said, all right, you're banished, meaning don't pester us some more. Now, in, die in a question that I'm surprised we don't ask ourselves more often, is there a metal band about this? And the answer is, yes, there is, of course. There's yes. A, a German metal band called Powerwolf, which sings about vampires and werewolves and is inspired by the Livonian werewolf. But if we're going to take our own inspiration from this, this is tailor-made for a, a modern role-playing scenario where... And you're not just from Livonia anymore. You can be from anywhere in the world. So we can have a nice uh, uh, cast of uh, diverse characters, whoever you want to play. But uh, everybody uh, has been uh, at one point toasted by a rascal. and Or uh, some other way turned into a wolf. They can have a, a whole bunch of origin stories. Yeah. Uh, but you're the good guy werewolves. Yes. Uh, and uh, your job is to is to periodically go into hell and beat up bad guys there in order to effectuate positive change in the real world. Uh, now, it may be that you... Um, you know, the uh, feast may have only known how to get there on holy days, but unless you just want to have three adventures per year, which would also possibly be interesting, be but fun, yeah. not necessarily so very. You, you can do, for example, six adventures. One adventure is the one where you can't go to hell and fight these witches, but you have to sort of figure out who the witches are so that when you go to hell next time, you can, you know, call them out. This this right. is sounding very much like Werewolf uh, the Apocalypse, actually. Well, it, it is it is a game of werewolves, but... Um, this would, uh, sort of give us a more, uh, good guy, bad guy thing, right? Because. Right. Yeah, but if you're, if you're fighting guys that are stealing the fertility of the land, right? Via our, our good buddies at, at Werewolf, maybe what you're fighting is a bunch of polluters and they're, they're working for the devil and that's why they're polluting. Um, and so, you know, you're like Captain Planet and his werewolves. And, and you go down into, into hell and you're like, you, um, uh, uh, Mr. Chinese plastics conglomerate head, we're going to hunt you down. And the Chinese conglomerate plastics is like, what am I even doing in Christian hell? What the heck? This is very strange. Uh, but that's the werewolf power. Well, and, and I'm sure that in the vast corpus of the world of darkness, they have dealt with the Livonian werewolves at one point oh, or I'm another. Sure they they have have to have, have. Yeah. Uh, but this also gives us the opportunity for something that is, uh, perhaps a little lighter and, and, uh, pulpier if you want. And, uh, yeah. you know, the fun good guy werewolves and part way. And of course you can't just, um, have a long running werewolf series where you just only turn into wolves when you journey to hell. Eventually something happens, you know, down in hell, you get double toasted by, uh, Lucifer and then, uh, you start to, you know, transform in the, the real world or you have, uh, wolfish abilities and stuff. And Maybe it's a thing where if you if you do it on the holy days, it doesn't bleed out. But if you do it for other reasons, then you run the risk of it, you know, uh, becoming like uh, Lon Chaney werewolf and becoming involuntary. So for a while, you can do it just fine. Uh, if you only do it on the holy days, you're good. But if you do it on another day, like to you know help a cat out of a tree or or beat up a mugger, then it's like, although I guess a werewolf would probably be the worst possible way to help a cat out of a tree. But the, um, but, but if you change the werewolf to beat up a mugger, then, well, that's, you got one tick on your involuntary well, werewolfery. And at some point when it exceeds your willpower or your, or your whatever, then the GM can just turn you into a werewolf whenever they like, or you have to start rolling when it's a full moon, uh, to, to risk uh, turning into a werewolf against your will. And, uh, and so that's, uh, you know, you'd have to then come up with the werewolf different types of werewolf specialties the way that Werewolf the Apocalypse obviously does in order to, you know, uh, distinguish all of the characters from one another. And, of course, who they are in their civilian life before they uh, joined the ranks of the Livonian society uh, would also have a different range of abilities. So, you know, you're the techie who turns into a wolf and the uh, martial arts instructor who turns into a wolf and, and so on and so forth. But uh, it, this does give us a premise for uh, something that is... Uh, lighter both in spirit and in fictional superstructure than 
the world of darkness because you know right. in werewolf yeah. apocalypse, I mean, you, at, at, at its base it's a it's a fun story about going to hell and beating up witches exactly and and you know not the nice contemporary witches but the no not wiccans witches yeah yeah witches the ones we just thought up when we started rambling in court about our <laughs> right. werewolfism yes. and the guy who broke my nose <laughs> that jerk yeah uh well, uh, on that note, uh, I think I feel like I need to find some Lutherans and confess something outlandish to them, and I'm sure you do as well, Ken. So Every day. Every day, all day. Uh, that means it's time for us to uh, wrap uh, this episode, but we'll be back next week uh, to talk about even more stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by Jim Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop this podcast from succumbing to unwanted lycanthropy confessions by leaguing yourself with such Patreon backers as... Peter Nix. Philip Masters. Robert Wolf. Ryan Lassiter and Tenant Reed. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. I have ordered 50 of our latest design, Valhalla Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>